Well, good morning. Welcome to Prodigal Church. We're so glad that you've joined us for week one of For Such a Time as This, this uh, three-week journey through the book of Esther. Now, a lot has been made about the fact that in the entire book of Esther, no mention of God. Not one time. Ten chapters of the Bible, and the name of God is absent on every page. A reference to God doesn't even appear in any translation of the book. But his fingerprints are found all over it. Chuck Swindoll, in his excellent commentary on the book of Esther, wrote this, God's presence is not as intriguing as his absence. His voice is not as eloquent as his silence. Who of us has not longed for a word from God, searched for a glimpse of his power, or yearned for the reassurance of his presence, only to feel that he seems absent? Only to feel that he seems absent from the moment, distant, preoccupied, yet later we realize how present he was all along. The events described in chapter 1 of the book of Esther take place in 481 B.C. And the Jewish people have been removed from their home for over 100 years. The Babylonians came in, destroyed their temple, and took their people and exiled them to Babylon. Uh, Babylon has since that point been taken over by the kingdom of Persia. And the Persian rule has been much more hospitable for the Jewish people. They even allowed some of the Jewish people to go back to their home. Uh, but don't get me wrong. The Persians were not friends to the Jews, nor did they fear the Jewish God. The, the capital of Persia was Susa, and there the kings would rule their empire. And Xerxes was king, not just of Persia, but of uh, most of the known world at the time. Xerxes was impulsive, narcissistic, and had more power than anyone else on earth. History tells us that Xerxes was a very cruel king, one time at the Hellenspont, uh, there by the seaside, a huge storm came up. And this monster of a storm came in, ruined all of his ships. And it, not only that, it knocked down all the bridges of the harbor, completely devastated the whole area. So what did King Xerxes do? He commanded that his soldiers go out to the ocean and give it 300 lashes to whip the sea, to spank it for being so naughty. He then turned to his mechanics who built the ships and who built the bridges and beheaded them. Nobody crosses King Xerxes. This is the king in this time period. And his wife was a beautiful woman named Vashti. He was the envy of all the men of the known world. She was the envy of all the women in the Persian kingdom. And like most men in power, Xerxes loved a good party, especially the kinds of parties where he could show off his vast wealth and power. So Xerxes throws this massive party for all the rich and the elite in his kingdom, and this party lasts for 180 days. The Persian kings believed that the gods would give them strategies for military victory while they were drunk. So they were drunk a lot. And after the 180-day party, the king decides that it wasn't quite enough, so he throws another seven-day rager. Ain't no party like a Persian party, because a Persian party don't quit, okay? It lasts seven days. You see, when the music stops, though, and the people have gone, and all that is left is just confetti on the floor, the king is alone with his own thoughts, and that's terrifying. So he throws this second party. And at this party, the booze is really flowing. And the theme is opulence. 
Each glass of wine was put into a golden goblet for hundreds of people. And each golden goblet was unique and different from all the other golden goblets. This was the kind of opulence displayed at King Xerxes' party. And on the last day of the party, Xerxes invites his wife, Queen Vashti, to come out so that he can show off her beauty to all the drunken elite. And she refuses. He wants to show her off. The, the text is a little bit inconspicuous. It's as if she, he's saying, you need to come in and you don't need to wear anything. So you need to show off your beauty to everybody here. The head coverings that we now see in much of Islam had its roots in the Persian kingdom. And the king here invites Vashti to come in to remove her coverings, to display her beauty, and to display her body. She refuses. She was invited to be demeaned and disrobed by the most powerful man in the world, and she refuses. Vashti is an unsung hero in this story. She defied the most powerful man in the world. This pagan woman defied a disreputable king, and she is no more. But her courage and bravery lives on in the lives of countless women today. Now this sent Xerxes into a rage, you can imagine. This is the guy who whipped the sea. So some of the king's officials said, what must be done to Vashti? Well, we got to do something because women are going to start disrespecting their husbands all over this kingdom if we don't make an example out of her. And so they did. I mean, how insecure are these men? First, they banish Vashti, and they banish her from his presence, his palace, and from the pages of history. And yeah, he's been drinking for 187 days, so he's definitely in the headspace to make big lifetime de uh, decisions, right? Big life-altering decisions. The next thing to be done is to make sure that all the women of the empire know who's boss. So they send out royal messengers to proclaim to all the provinces that all women must respect their husbands. This Vashti event, this refusing, it's a small event, but it has absolutely astounding ramifications. Her refusal is the first drop in something much bigger. So you may never know the full effects of the decisions that you make. The book of Esther is a reminder that big doors swing on small hinges. Big, life-changing, dramatic shifts in our world and in our lives happen on small hinges. Small decisions you and I make. It's in these little decisions in life that shape our futures, that change our trajectories. It's not always the life-altering decisions that are life-altering. It's often the small, non-altering life decisions that actually become life-altering. And such is the case with Vashti. Big doors swing on small hinges. King Xerxes once again realizes that he's alone. The officials, once again, trying to keep their sugar daddy happy, they propose another idea. Let's gather all the most beautiful young vir virgins of the empire— women from every province, and let us place them in the care of your trusted eunuch, and let's give them beauty treatments. So let's, they're going to have a, a beauty pageant. King's like, this is a great idea. And they're like, oh, great king, then you can test drive all these beautiful potential queens, and whoever you like best will be queen instead of Vashti. So there's this beauty pageant where all the most beautiful women in the king's world are put into the care of a eunuch. 
Now, a eunuch played a very important role in the ancient world. Uh, they were men who were castrated, uh, and therefore they can be trusted with powerful women uh, without fear of them making sexual advances. Because in ancient Persia, there were only two men who could touch the queen, the king himself and the king's trusted eunuch. Uh, if anyone else touches her, <laughs> the penalty is death. This proves to be very important for our story, but more on that next week. So all the beautiful women of the empire are placed in the harem of the king, and each is given one night with the king. And that's the setting of Esther, okay? Then the storyteller steps back and is able to introduce the main characters. He says this in Esther chapter 2. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had raised because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. Esther was an orphan. Esther and her people were slaves. They were exiled in a foreign land. She was beyond powerless, an orphan slave woman, and her older cousin takes care of her, and looks out for her. So Esther, this orphan Jewish girl, was taken to the king's harem, but before she leaves, Mordecai, Mordecai insists, don't reveal your identity. Don't let him know that you're Jewish. And she honors his request. She doesn't understand all the de details why, but she honors his request. And as soon as Esther enters the harem, she immediately won everybody over. She wins over the king's eunuch. She wins over the king. Uh, and when Esther's night with the king arrived, she was able to bring with her whatever she wanted, but she only takes with her that which the eunuch told her to. And it says that Esther was more pleasing to the king than any other woman, and immediately a crown was placed on her head. This orphan Jewish girl was queen of Persia. Wow. I mean, it's, it's a lot like a Disney rags-to-riches type story. Uh, but I want to point out several points um, that I think they are super applicable to our own lives from this story. We're not going to be walking through this book verse by verse. There's 10 chapters, but we'll kind of be looking at it from a, a grand narrative uh, point of view and see what maybe God has for us this morning and beyond. Number one is this. God opportunities are disguised as obstacles. She was an orphan slave girl. Yet all that she had experienced in her life, that gave her the resolve, the wisdom, and the character to make her shine in the palace. When Steven Spielberg was making the movie Jaws, and if you've never seen it, uh, Jaws is about a shark, okay? They had this huge mechanical shark. And the first day they started filming, it sunk to the bottom of the ocean. It malfunctioned, sunk all the way to the bottom. Okay, it was an obstacle, okay? They could have said, well, the movie's over. Okay, the movie's about a shark. And now the shark that we spent all this time designing and building is now at the bottom of the ocean. Steven Spielberg stepped back from that scene, went back to the drawing board, and he said, maybe there's an opportunity here. Some of you in this season are going through some real pain. And God is inviting you to step back, and if we're able to pause, we might be able to discover some of the purpose 
within the pain. So they went back to the drawing board and they said, maybe there's something more to this whole no shark thing. And he said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to create curiosity. We're going to create anticipation. We're going to create fear in the audience with sound design and only giving small little glimpses of the shark. And you know the rest of the story, right? Jaws went on to become one of the biggest movies of all time, and it set up Steven Spielberg's career. But not only that, in film school today, they study the techniques that Steven Spielberg implemented in the movie Jaws to build that intensity. The opportunity was disguised in an obstacle. So often in our lives, opportunity is knocking, and we're too busy complaining about the noise to ever answer the door. We're too busy complaining about the knocking to even open up the door of possibility. What possibilities, what opportunities might God be knocking on your door in this season? But we're so blinded and we're so plug our ears to all the knocking and complain about it. It might be just the very thing that God wants us to look at. Number two, opportunities are delivered through people. Opportunities are delivered through people. I wish this wasn't so. I wish that God would just give me a dream, give me like a letter or something uh, that just tells me, do this. But most of the time, God will bring you the opportunity through a person. Uh, in the year 2000, okay, 20 years ago, uh, I lived in southeastern Africa for six months. And every Saturday, uh, we would walk two miles through a, a dense African forest. And then we would get on two different minibuses, the first at Chigamula Market, the second at Limby. They would take us all the way to Blantyre, the commercial capital. And we would email our families, and we would stop by the post office to see if anybody had written us any letters. Every so often, we would get a care package from family or friends. And those care packages, they meant so much to us. I remember my family sending me an entire sports section of the Fresno Bee uh, and to catch me up on all things sports, okay? I found out who won the Super Bowl that year in March because of a paper that my parents sent me back in January. Uh, it was one of my care packages for my mom. My mom sent it, but the postman was the delivery agent. My mom was the sender, but it was delivered by somebody else. Make no mistake about it. God is the giver of all good gifts, right? James tells us that he's the father of lights, that every good and perfect gift comes from God, comes from the Father. So God is the sender, but when God sends people a gift, and when God sends people an opportunity, more often than not, he uses people to deliver that. Look at the story of Esther. She goes from an orphan street girl to queen. How? Well, because Xerxes, a person, chose her. Not only that, but Mordecai invested in her. And not only that, the king's eunuch believed in her. God delivered the opportunity through people. In this season, could you be on the lookout 
for the people God might be using to deliver you opportunities? Maybe it's a text message somebody sends you. Maybe it's a letter. Maybe it's an email. Maybe it's an invite from someone. What opportunities are you neglecting because you're expecting a dream or a vision or a a pillar of uh, fire or the clouds parting from heaven and God's using a person to deliver that opportunity? Number three, opportunities widen for those who patiently prepare. See, we think when we read the Bible that the events that took place happen in about the same amount of time as it takes for us to read that story in the Bible, okay? You could read Esther 1 and 2 in 10 minutes, and you're like, oh my gosh, that was fast. That was so quick. But life doesn't move at the pace of Disney fairy tales, right? It's not 90 minutes long. See, we know that in Esther chapter 1, it was the third year of King Xerxes' reign. But we discover in Esther chapter 2 that Esther was taken into the royal residence in the seventh year of King Xerxes' reign. There's four years between Esther 1 and Esther 2. It's been four years since Queen Vashti was banished. Not only that, but she has spent a full year in preparation before she ever met King Xerxes. Some of you, you've been waiting on a dream, and now it's been a year or two, and you think, well, I guess it wasn't real. Don't you know, the bigger the promise, the more time you have to wait. Time doesn't disqualify the promise. Time validates the promise. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Time doesn't disqualify the promise that you believe God gave you. It validates it. All good things take time. It takes patience. And contrary to popular belief, patience isn't waiting. Patience is waiting with the right attitude. There's a big difference. Because you're going to wait either way. doesn't mean you're patient. The question is, will you be patient while you wait? And will you choose the right spirit in all seasons, whether it's good or it's bad? Whether you are prospering or whether you are lacking, whether you are in the valley or you are on the mountaintop. And finally, live like God is already doing what you're waiting for. I find, I, this is true. Esther wasn't twiddling her thumbs and all of a sudden she became queen. So many times in our lives, we think that once we get what we've been praying for, that then we're going to get everything right. I remember in high school, well, in college, I'll get serious about God. Or when I graduate college, then I'll get serious about this aspect. Oh, when I get married, then I'll start being... Some of you are like, I'm going to have peace when I get married. No, you won't. I'm going to have confidence when they promote me at work. No, you won't. I'm going to live on mission once I graduate college. No, you won't. I will speak faith once I get my miracle. That's the opposite of faith. You should be living like God is already doing what you're waiting for. Hear that again, church. You should be living like God is already doing what you're waiting for. Look at Esther. If you have to stay ready, then you never have to get ready. If we're expectant of God to open up opportunities in our lives, then we'll be ready when those opportunities knock on the door. You gotta love Esther, because she was living like a queen before she became a queen. 
Years on the streets, being displaced, losing a mother and father, being raised by a cousin, being in a foreign land. She was prepared. She didn't wait to be royal. She was royal all along. She was a royal orphan slave girl because beauty can change, but real beauty is cultivated through character and through her heart for God. What does that look like for us? What have you been praying for that God would do? Start living as if he's doing it. Don't wait. Don't wait and postpone your happiness. Don't postpone your joy. Don't postpone your purpose till after quarantine. Live your purpose now in the middle of it. And it just might change your life. And it just might change the life of those around you. Let's pray. God, we need you. We love you. We thank you so much for Queen Esther, for how you raised her up, and we'll discover next week for such a time as this. And God, you have, have us, all of us, where we are for such a time as this. God, help us to discern good opportunities and God opportunities. Lord, help us to be ready for when those opportunities open. Help us, God, to live out your promises while we wait for fulfillment of those promises. Lord, give us strength. Give us endurance. Help us to trust you and to love well in the middle of this season. In Jesus' name.